Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, as we consider the distance from Cornwall to Brussels, Robert Hormatz joins us. He's the Tideman Advisors. Ambassador Hormatz, of course, is public service to the nation for Republicans and for Democrats as well. Ambassador, thank you so much for your perspective uh, this morning. I want to go back to one of the chapters of your wonderful book, The Price of Liberty, The First Great Test. What is the first great test for President Biden when he meets with Mr. Putin? Well, he has to demonstrate that the United States is going to be much more resolute in resisting uh, various cyber attacks that come from Russia or are perhaps sponsored by the Russian government. We're trying to sort out which is which. But certainly we have been plagued by lots of cyber problems coming from that country, uh, either directly through the government or indirectly by people on that territory. And these not only are disruptive in themselves, but portend the prospect of things getting even worse or escalating. And that can be very disruptive to American companies and to the overall American economy. We're very cyber vulnerable because we're so connected. Can we be cyber offensive? I'm sure we have been. I'm also sure that when we do it, we don't say anything. And uh, the reason is that We don't want other countries, not just Russia, but any other country, to understand how we do it, what we're doing, and what our technology is. But we certainly have the technology to be more offensive, and they know that. And I think that there is at least some sense that if they go too far, the United States can take action against them, and uh, it could be very disruptive because they have a a weaker economy. The, The problem is that we're a very connected economy, and therefore... A lot of things can happen here in one area, say electricity, which could shut water supplies down or transit systems down or energy systems down. So the world's in a very precarious place if we start getting into cyber attacks on one another. Ambassador, how much unity is there among the G7, among the G30 in combating cyber attacks together, in working together to make sure that networks are up to speed and protected and that information is shared? Well, I would put it this way. We have a long way to go. Um, There are different countries who are vulnerable in different ways. As you've seen, some Central and European countries have already borne the brunt of this. And there is really not, I think, a collective doctrine of collaboration or of what constitutes uh, an attack that requires retaliation. The other problem is sourcing and and what they call attribution in this world, and you sometimes don't know where the cyber attack actually is coming from or who the perpetrator is. So that makes it more difficult as well. But I think the vulnerabilities are becoming increasingly apparent. And there is going to be, and there's, and and NATO is probably the vehicle for doing it um, and for getting this together. But we don't know as much about how these are done, where they're coming from. And we certainly don't have a doctrine of specific retaliation for specific kinds of attacks. But we know things are getting worse. And uh, if we're going to stop them, A, we have to improve our defenses, which as you've seen, 
in certain instances have not been all that good. In fact, they have been inadequate. And we also need them to know that uh, if they don't deal with things that come from their government yeah. or from on their territory, we will have uh, an opportunity and a will to take more action that can be very disruptive to them. Bob, there's a question. The reason why I ask this is, is not just about cyber, but there's a broader point here, leaving the G7, heading to the NATO summit. There was a lot of disagreement about how hard of a line to take with China, how hard of a line to take with Russia. But my eyes really are on uh, China, given the predominance in the global economy. Where are the biggest question marks there in terms of getting some sort of unified uh, strategy in how to uh, d interact with China? It's a great question, and there is not a clear answer because the Europeans are concerned with certain things, certainly Chinese trade policy, intellectual property protection, uh, an unlevel playing field that uh, favors China vis-a-vis -vis American companies, but the China, but, uh, European companies. But the, the problem is that companies in Europe and countries in Europe are very vulnerable. They have become very dependent on the Chinese market. That's been cut back somewhat. But if they take very tough action against China, for instance, German cars, which do very well in China, are vulnerable in other German products. Uh, the United States is in a somewhat different position. The Europeans are not so concerned about the strategic strength of China, uh, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, and many of the geopolitical and geostrategic issues in the Pacific that we're concerned about don't so much uh, trouble the Europeans. They're more concerned about the human rights issues. They're more concerned about trade issues. Uh, they don't want an all-out trade war or an all-out confrontation with China. The United States has a lot of geostrategic and geopolitical issues. We have a navy there. The Europeans don't. So we have a wholly different set of issues on the strategic side. We're similar to them, and we have similar concerns on the economic side and the human rights side. So my guess is if there's to be some measure of unity, it's really in those areas, not in the geopolitical ones. Um, Do we're trying to get them to take a tougher line on China, but they are also concerned about their economic vulnerability and are much more reticent to do that. Do we risk, by the way, pushing China and Russia closer together? Uh, Bob, how, how uh, strong is that relationship? Well, we've already in part done that um, because it, it is, I mean, the European, the, the Russians and the, and the Chinese um, have had their issues over time. In fact, the first opening between the United States and China came because the Chinese and we perceived a Russian threat to China along the Usuri River. And there were, there were numerous Russian divisions on the Chinese border. So it hasn't been a particularly comfortable relationship from time to time. But now they're beginning to realize that uh, if they want to deal with the United States and resist some American pressures, they're going to probably have to work together. And that's what they're doing. And I do think there is that that has happened already. And the risk is that it will happen e even even further. The other thing is you know, that other other countries in the middle are feel they don't want to be caught like a lot of the Asians between the United States. Well, and China. I, I wanted to ask about I wanted to ask about that, uh, Bob. The last time I sat on set with Tom Keene in person, um, there was an attempted coup d'etat on Erdogan, which he uh, fought back and brushed off um, pretty quickly. How does Turkey fit into NATO right now? I mean, they do have the second largest army in the alliance, but they don't really see eye to eye with the U.S. 
Well, they don't um, on numerous issues, Syria being one of them, northern Iraq being another, the Kurds being another, and that's part of the Syria and northern Iraq issue. On the other hand, the Turks are extremely valuable. Their bases are very important to the United States in, in resisting uh, Russian pressure. Um, the Turks have made, Erdogan and Putin have both made efforts to try to improve relations, which they have done. Uh, but they still want the, the uh, assurance that the United States is going to be there if relations with the Russians deteriorate. I think that that question that you've asked is an important one. Are we going to be, and is NATO going to be resolute uh, with Putin moving more and more troops up into Central Europe, not across the border um, necessarily, although, but the troops have gone, many troops have gone up close to the border. So there's a feeling among of unease among the NATO countries. I think one of the tests in the NATO summit today is going to be, are we all committed to Article 5 and what would we do if there were incursions mm -hmm. in um, Article 5 countries, that is to say NATO countries, and what will we do if there are incursions into other countries that are not in NATO, uh, but whose interests are important to the United States? So um, the, the question of how do you convince Putin to be restrained um, is, uh, is going to be a critical one. And are there ways of improving relations with Russia uh, over the next uh, right. several years? The, the Europeans would like that to see that, see, see that happen also. We're out of time. We'll do it again. Robert Hormetz, thank you so much. Ambassador Hormetz of the Tideman Advisors. And the I show. can't say enough about uh, his books on the United States and our diplomacy. dive into this right now on a Monday reset is you reset to get to 4th of July. We're watching the affairs of NATO to bring you up to speed there. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm gasping over the length of the carpet. Uh, to, to, to talk of NATO, uh, we had the photo shoot. We had the meet and greet that looked sort of Hollywoodish to say the least. And maybe now we go into individual discussions uh, to be had uh, in NATO, bilaterals as they call them. The president meets with Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin out on NBC uh, in the last number of hours uh, making for some very uh, tough language there on how he sets up his meeting with the president of the United States. Tough language now from Brian Nick of Nuveen as we try to get out of our way in the market. Brian, how do you frame it? I mean, Nuveen is known as a bond house, but you do a lot of equity uh, as well. How do you frame the mystery of Q3 and Q4 earnings? Yeah, we're actually just starting to write about this for our media yeah, outlook. Well, and I we think want the to key get here front. is how, how, how are things going versus how is the market expecting them to go? So the first half was all about exceeding expectations earnings beating expectations, economic data beating expectations, vaccinations and the vaccines themselves being more effective and more widespread and distributed than expected. I think now we're getting to this point where the markets and the economy overall are starting to just merely meet expectations. And that's why you've seen a bit, I think, of a of a tapering back in the 10-year. The, the I think you've seen a bit of a you know, flattening out in terms of the, the pace of increases in the equity markets and about the pace of sort of the narrowing and spreads in the credit markets. Everything has sort of come to a, not quite a crawl, but maybe something, you know, asymptotically approaching some equilibrium level until we get new news. How is the second half of the year going to go? I think we, obviously what we're expecting is fewer surprises than we've gotten in the last couple of quarters from earnings season. And that probably has, you know, some some relation to what's going on in the bond markets as well with the tenure having come off and with the Fed, I think is expected to remain quite dovish 
on June. I think in the June meeting, I think if they say anything hawkish, it'll be a mistake. So, Brian, give us the distinction between successful and beating expectations and disappointing expectations. Is it companies that have pricing power that can raise prices on consumers to meet some of the supply chain disruptions and the higher commodity prices? Or is it simply being big tech and everyone needing an iPhone? Yeah, that's certainly the pattern we're used to, right? When the rest of the world is sort of decelerating, that's sort of tech's moment to shine. And every time we've seen interest rates come back at the same time as earnings have started to decelerate back or maybe not beat as reliably, that's been a really good time to be in, in tech. And so we've been pretty neutral between the, the you know, ultra cyclical deep value and then the sort of the higher growth defensives. We're, we're kind of spread out across the board there because, again, we're obviously you know leaning into the uncertainty a bit, but also looking for a pretty, um, you know, sharp and, and noticeable deceleration in economic growth in the U.S. Overseas, though, I think we're still waiting for peak economic growth. We're waiting for peak growth in Europe, the U.K., later in the year, Asia, and, and emerging markets as they get themselves vaccinated. So there could be a bit of a rotation here as investors look for where are we still seeing the news beating expectations. They could be looking outside the United States. Brian, are you concerned at all here, I guess, about the inability to, I guess, properly forecast uh, some of the economic trends out there? We're starting to see uh, a lot more sort of, uh, I guess, surprises, if you will, uh, at least as far as what a certain economists and certain strategists on the street are expecting with regards to some of the economic data points, not only here in the U.S., but really overseas as well. Do you think that that could end up creating a little bit more volatility as we go forward? I think certainly outside the U.S., we're still seeing most of the data coming in better than expected. I think if you've got an economic model that's worked for the last seven recessions, it probably didn't work very well for this one because it's more like a light switch getting turned off and turned back on. Uh, so most of the data, especially with all the stimulus, with the vaccinations being this completely you know unique variable to this recession, I think that has caused a lot of the economy uh, economic forecasting to be you know too low and, and i think we're starting to see that overseas more as well in the u.s we've actually seen the surprise <clears throat> indexes that we track um coming back down to close yeah. to neutral um so it's this is the housing market is you know showing signs of maybe just cooling off just a bit consumers not going to be as hot without the stimulus moving forward it should be easier to forecast these things once we get all these kind of strange and unique variables out of the way brian the calculus off of pre-pandemic is Standard & Poor's 500 up 35%, sort of a blended bond event, up 3%. You made the coupon in a teensy-weens bit of total uh, return as well. Are people worn out with fixed income? And I say this with immense respect with what Nuveen invented across America in the packaging of unit trusts. Are we worn out from bond returns? Well, I think what we're telling clients is that, you know, you should be diversifying into higher yielding or just non-correlated parts of the fixed income market, because whether or not interest rates move up from here, it's going to be tough to make that three and a half percent again over the next year with a traditional bond portfolio, given how low yields have gotten. And if they move, if they're moving higher, it's going to be even tougher to do that as we expect they will over the next year, two years, three years. Um, so what we're looking mm -hmm. to, to, you know, set people up with instead is, you know, things like the high yield part of the municipal bond market, emerging market credit, where we still think there's value and anything that's sort of less correlated to rising rates or less susceptible to rising rates. So anything like in the loan yeah. area, senior loans, floating rate securities, uh, where you could be building in a little bit more protection against that, that rise in rates yeah. that ends up knocking a lot of things off the board. Brian, Nick, thank you so much with Naveen uh, this morning, their chief investment strategist. Right now on American Politics, 
We go granular with Gregory Vallier. He has a tough life to the south of Switzerland, up in the Alps, lost with some St. Bernard somewhere on his way to Milan. He is leading the way to American tourism in Europe. Greg, very quickly here, should Americans yeah. travel to Europe? You're leading the way. If, you had, if you've had your shots, if you have been tested recently, yes. Okay, we'll leave it there. Greg, let's go. There's too much going on. I want to go to a great NPR thing I heard on Tennessee, which is the distance between Memphis and Nashville, where the Democrats of Memphis, the Democrats of Nashville in the 5th and 9th districts get gerrymandered out, and this costs the Democrats the House. How many of those battles are there out there now to give a Speaker Pelosi some serious angst? If forced to make a wager today, Tom, I think the House falls to the Republicans in 2022. The history would indicate it. The redistricting would indicate it. Some important Democrats have announced their resignation. I think the Republicans are favored. The Republicans are favored. What kind of Republican House would it be? Would it be fragile and of gridlock? It would be fragile. I, I think that McCarthy is going to have his hands full with people who are not uh, don't owe him anything. But uh, I think you'd get gridlock, Tom, in the, the last two years of Biden's first term. You know, Lisa, this is really important. It's the first real conversation we've had about a majority GOP in the House. Yeah, the idea here of what happens if the Democrats can't go it alone and how much urgency is it behind is there behind them to get something done uh, before the 2022 midterms? Greg, what is your sense of how likely it is that we see some sort of deal, whether bipartisan or partisan, by uh, next year, given all of the hurdles and the divisions within the Democratic Party? I think only one of the three, Lisa, you'll get something on infrastructure. It sure as heck isn't going to be $2.25 trillion. It'll be much, much less. The other two are in trouble. The $2 trillion for social programs is on life support. And then finally, the third one, a big tax hike, I think is also on life support. There might be a little on the very wealthy and, and big corporations, but a, a grandiose tax hike that Biden wants, I think, is in real trouble. In the meantime, there does seem to see uh, some unity when it comes to Republicans and Democrats on the international strategy, particularly with respect to China. And I'm wondering whether the President Biden's tour internationally this past couple of weeks really gives light to how far apart the U.S. has gotten from European allies when it comes to what exactly they should do uh, with respect to China. I think Biden sort of got what he wanted from our allies on China. I think we are demanding more transparency on the virus. Uh, we are demanding that they treat their dissidents better. Uh, we're demanding that they stop hacking into our companies. So I think on a lot of these key issues, there's not a lot of space between us and European allies. We're all united in opposition to China right now. Do you think, though, Greg, that some of those allies have the same cushion, the same wiggle room, I guess, to push back against China in the way that maybe the U.S. has? Good point. I, I think the U.S. is more adamant. Uh, the Western Europeans have other issues, including Putin, of course. But I, I, I do think that, again, Biden got in the communique uh, what he wanted. He didn't get everything. We still can't decide what we're going to do with coal. Uh, he and uh, Trudeau did not agree on opening up the border with Canada. But I'd say the first part of this trip has been a great public relations success. I think Biden's numbers, his job approval numbers are headed higher. Do you, oh, so do you think, though, I guess some of the international gains that he may, may be making on the international stage, that that actually translates to 
the real people on the ground here in the U.S. with regards to his popularity and the likelihood that they may vote for him or at least his party again? Oh, fearless forecast. I think within a week or two, Biden's numbers will be a little over 60 percent positive. That gives him political capital. He's going to need it to get much done on infrastructure. I think we're several weeks away from ironing out any kind of deal on infrastructure. So he needs that high approval number to help his cause. Uh, Greg, one final question here. We've got to get back to the markets and, and what we're seeing yeah. at NATO is, is, well, in this political maelstrom, we seem to be back to normalcy. Can you say that, that Mr. Biden has dragged us back to a diplomatic and domestic normalcy? Or is the jury still out? It's a huge point, Tom, and I think the answer is yes. You know, whether it was Macron or Merkel, they all pretty much agree the U.S. is back. There was a goodwill, good spirit between all the leaders. Obviously, the Putin meeting isn't going to go great. But I think with our allies, there's a sense that after these four horrible years, things are, are returning to normal. Uh, very good. Greg, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciated this morning. Mr. Uh, Vellier joining us from the Alps of Switzerland on his way to Italy, which is maybe the best. Best news we've said in 18 months. Uh Let's get right to Michael Darda, MKM Partners here to set up the Economic Week. And he joins us from an island somewhere in the vicinity south of Cape Cod. Uh, Michael Darda, Martha's Vineyard, you're living it out there. Wages, lack of labor, lack of housing. It's a real-time microcosm of what we've got worldwide. Are we going to see wages rise and stay elevated? Well, Tom, we are seeing them rise. And certainly out here on the vineyard, you can see these supply-side disturbances that have been holding back job growth over the last few months. We're way out in the westerly, sort of a remote part of the oh, island here. Oh, my heart here. bleeds they're, for you. It's they're, terrible. They're only a... Uh, uh, a couple options in terms of restaurants where we are, and none of them are open for indoor dining. And it's not because of COVID, it's because they cannot yeah. find employees, staff. And so it's essentially a, a takeout situation where you can yeah. oh, uh, sit down terrible. and eat there with no staff. I'm crying. Michael, get out the grill, play the Gorilla album from James Taylor and move forward. Okay, let's look at the national situation now, uh, Michael Darda. Do you believe in a sustained GDP? I mean, looking at the top level and linking in nominal GDP to where we are, do we misjudge the sustainability of this economy to boom? I think that's exactly what's happening, Tom. We are in a boom. Uh, there are some supply side dislocations that are a bit confusing, but I think growth is going to be quite strong, well above potential next year. And that gets us to this question about inflation and whether it's temporary or potentially more permanent. Some of these price, price spikes are going to be temporary. You're not going to see used car prices going up 7 or 8% every single month. But there are other prices that are stickier, that are slower moving, that haven't even even gotten going yet that we could see start to move next year if we stay in this really robust nominal GDP environment. So Milton Friedman posited the relationship that, you know, monetary policy eases first, so money gets going. Within a few quarters, you yeah. see output move. And then in terms of the lag on inflation, inflation is backward looking and slow moving most right. of the time. And that could be a few years. And we're already seeing inflation from these supply side right. shocks. But the demand side element, I think, 
is going to be a bit more persistent than widely expected. Lisa, that is the first time in the history of the People's Republic of Martha's Vineyard that you've heard the name Milton Friedman mentioned on the Grand <laughs> Island. Never happened before. All right. Thank you for the Bloomberg exclusive, Mike Godarda. We appreciate the uh, the mention of Milton Friedman on Martha's Vineyard. Going forward, how do we know, though, this idea of sticky inflation? When will we know, given the fact that people have pointed to wages and we see wages going up, but people even dismiss that as transitory? Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, you know, we know these flexible prices are rocketing and those are going to be the first to respond but they will respond both to supply side and demand side shocks the stickier prices um, within the core tend to be more slower moving and you have a lot of monetary policy officials now that are in the temporary and transitory camp looking at median you know trimmed mean uh, prices for these different indexes, whether it's the median prices for the CPI or the trimmed mean for the PCE deflator. So we're getting a bit into the weeds, but these are slower moving uh, price indices that you know will tend to respond over time. And, and so those areas, I think next year, if they start to get moving along with higher inflation expectations, then that that's that's going to probably get the Fed's attention in a way that some of these price increases this year have not. Well, let's just uh, zoom out a little bit. The balance of risks right now, is it to much higher yields or frankly to lower yields and poor performance in equity markets should the reality of slower growth actually set in after this inflationary bump? Yeah, I think the risk is to higher yields from where we are right now. Our forecast for year end is 2% in the 10-year Treasury. So recently, you know, we ran up to the 170s in late March and we've pulled back. That pullback corresponded perfectly to a few months of disappointing job gains that we were seeing pressure on wages, pressure on hours worked. So these supply side disturbances holding back job growth. So if we see job growth accelerating towards those seven figure thresholds, then I think you're gonna see bond yields moving moving back up towards, you know, towards the highs of the year and then potentially even higher. That's our view. You know, obviously the market will decide and the market yeah. has been going the other way on yields for the last couple months here. But I think, um, you know, that's really what turned the tide. I think you had a lot of bearish sentiment in the bond market and it just took a, a couple weaker than expected readings on on jobs yeah. to to trigger a rally. And I do think that will reverse over time if job growth accelerates as some of these supply side pressures ease up yeah. uh, and we can go through what those are. But that's our view. Yeah, there's certainly a lack of consensus right now with the way things are being priced. Maybe you can go through uh, some of those additional pressures here, particularly against the backdrop of whether there is, I guess, distortions in this market uh, by Fed policy and whether the data themselves maybe leads to further distortion. No doubt about it. So on the job growth uh, angle, uh, we have some issues uh, from extended unemployment benefits. And so, you know, that's increased the reservation wage, the so-called wage that would call someone, um, you know, off the couch or, you know, waiting at, at home for a better opportunity to get back involved in the labor market. There's also been some hesitation on the part of the public in terms of risks to, you know, interfacing with the public. I think those will be easing back now as a bigger percentage of the population is vaccinated month over 
month over month. And we've had a problem with schools being closed and parents dealing with issues with respect to uh, child care. So all of those things should be improving over the course of the, the months ahead. I mean, the, right. it, we already have half the governor scaling back the jobless benefits, and then um, you know these will start to roll off completely in the fall. Uh, schools are reopening, and we're doing pretty well on the vaccinations. And so I think a lot of these issues are going to recede that you know that have been holding back job growth. And we are accelerating now on job gains, and so. Right. We're getting closer to the Fed starting to talk about, think about talking about, and then start talking about talking about the taper. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a lot of talk. Oh, I look so forward to the Fed meeting on Wednesday. All right, then let's uh, circle back then, uh, Mike, to, I guess, then the wage uh, issue here. And the idea here that some of the issues that we're having right now in the labor market are causing an increase in wages. I guess that's a good thing, uh, depending on what side of the fence you sit. But there's some concern here that that is definitely, I guess, the sticky part of the inflation debate right now, and that even if we do get some sort of right-sizing in the labor market, those wage gains are still going to be there. Yeah, I think they're still going to be there just because this is a booming nominal demand backdrop. And so we had a huge and sudden collapse in the economy last spring. Nominal GDP since then has been growing at an 18.5% annualized rate. So all nominal magnitudes should be you know, should be moving up uh, pretty rapidly. And, and wages are certainly a part of that. They're a sticky part of it. Um, but yeah, I think these wage increases are going to stick because the labor market's going to be tightening month after month. And you've got yeah. record job openings, a record quit quits rate. A lot of these leading indicators like first-time jobless claims collapsing, you know, very bullish for a tightening labor market and suggesting the Fed's probably a bit behind the curve here. Michael, the money question here and all the time that you and I have gone back and forth on this is, does the geometry we learned still worked? And if we go to, you know, Jude Wininsky and others studying the ISLM function of Hicks from years ago, does that traditional geometry work now? Or do you just anticipate at some point out there, we'll get back to what's in Michael Spence's textbooks? No, I think that you know I think the basic models can can help us think about shocks. You know, we wrote about that last year. But the essence yeah. of where we started with this Milton Friedman idea that, you know, monetary policy operates with lags and then you first see an easing show up in output and then, you know, inflation follows because it's stickier and tends to be a lagging indicator. I think we already see that playing out. And that would suggest more permanence to some of what we're seeing uh, rather than this very temporary, transitory, you know, base effect type nature, which is what the official company line, if you will, is right now. And of course, Michael, what is so important is on Martha's Vineyard, there is only one one metric for summer pricing, and that's the price of propane for the grill. I mean, folks, you have no (laughs) idea what it costs out on these islands to get propane. For those of you on radio, an action photograph of Michael Darda. This grill, Lisa, went to the moon. Is that that what we're focusing on? That's not what I'm focusing on. Are we focusing on the grill? (laughs) Really? Socks and flip-flops? Is that a thing, Michael? How did you guys get that photo? That is uh, (laughs) (laughs) not It's, right. coming, it's Mike, coming from inside the house, Mike. Michael Darda <laughs> will be out for dinner tonight. Thank you so much, Mr. Darda uh, from MKM Partners, uh, holding court out on Martha's Vineyard. 
right now, and we've been looking at the mayor's race in New York. For those of you worldwide, uh, it is there's like three Republicans on the island of Manhattan. Scott Stringer knows all of those Republicans, but this is a Democratic primary, and it is a primary that has been contentious. Scott Stringer, thank you so uh, much for joining us. Obviously, obviously, his leadership in Manhattan politics, and of course, his public services controller as well. Scott, I want to get the obligatory questions out of the way. You have been accused of sexual harassment. It has tur turned your candidacy upside down. What do you do now to move forward? Should you be dropping out and giving a powerful endorsement to a progressive, a liberal, or do you, do you move on to the primary? Well, look, these allegations literally are as far back as 30 years ago, and uh, it is unfortunate. It has had a big impact on the yes. campaign. No, question. But look, you know, this is not an easy venture when you run for mayor of New York City and, you know, people are going to come at you. But I have full faith in the voters of this city who know my 30 year record. They know the kind of person I am. Uh, just the other day, 300 women progressives signed a letter in support of my candidacy. So, look, it's a challenge. But when people look at the inconsistencies, when they follow the facts, uh, they have been the same person. They've always knew me in terms of endorsing another candidate. I'm in the race. And while my supporters can rank me first, they have an opportunity under ranked choice voting to rank another candidate second. But I have no plans to make an endorsement. But, you know, that could change in the coming days. Uh, who I would like to see as a second choice candidate. It's something I was thinking about over the weekend, and uh, we'll see how the next few days play. But right now, I'm running to win. The support has been really strong. And I just want to say to you, I don't think there are three Republicans in Manhattan. I think there are two. Okay, well, there's two, and we'll we'll do it. And Ken Pruitt was the third one until he, and, until he passed away. Scott Stringer, I, I look at the moment, and my I distill down this campaign, and folks, for those of you nationwide, it has been a vigorous, it is about democracy in New York City, even if it's one party. And Scott Stringer, it's devolved down to public safety and to the police. I want you to state your approach to this divisive nature of the police in this nation, and particularly the NYPD? Well, look, there's no question that people are concerned about public safety, and they should be. I'm a kid who grew up in the city in the 1970s when there were 2,000 murders a year. My mother used to tell my brother and I, when you get on the E train in Washington Heights, sit in the conductor car, because that was the only safe car. So I have lived my life through that lens. Obviously, we've come a long way in terms of safety. And I think the next mayor has to make sure the police are finding the people who are doing the shootings and to tackle the violence in the streets. There's no question about that. But also, we have to think about a police force that is less about over-policing in black and brown communities, more investment in kids to keep them away from the criminal justice system. We're seeing around the country that when you respond with mental health professionals to mental health challenges on the street, the results are better. So the next mayor is going to have to be able to keep the street safe and also make sure that we have a policing system that is fair and just. I think I'm qualified to do both, given my 30 years of experience in government, and I'm looking forward to that challenge. All right. So certainly a divisive uh, issue, Scott, but probably more divisive and at least more disparity with regards to the policy positions that I've seen amongst the Democratic candidates here is their position here on education and specifically how you make these investments, if you make investments at all, uh, in our public school systems, in our charter school systems for some, but more importantly overall in making sure that a lot of the kids out there are getting a fair education. That is going to be one of the number one issues facing the city. And look, I'm a 
public school parent. I got married late in life. I have a nine-year-old and eight-year-old. They're in public school. You look, I, I, I'm a failed remote learning teacher. They really struggled. It was no joke. Uh, our wonderful children really got hit hard. Uh, this de Blasio administration really didn't prepare yeah. for the pandemic. And I worry that they haven't prepared post-pandemic. But look, I believe that we need a mayor who's going to direct the issues facing kids, mental health challenges, more tutoring, yeah. uh, direct aid for the kids. And my proposal, quite simply, is to put two teachers in every classroom, K to five, because that's what the charter schools do in the private schools. It's time to give public kids, public edu- uh, public uh, school students, the opportunities to get a first rate education. I'm right. proud to be supported by the teachers and the principals yeah. and the CUNY professors, and I'm the education candidate for mayor. Oh, okay, but where do you get the resources to do that, the monetary resources? And it almost dovetails with Tom's question before here about the approach to the NYPD. There are a lot of people that want to see resources maybe taken out of that column and put potentially in the education column here. How do you balance those competing interests? Well, the nice thing about electing the city controller mayor is I actually know the finances of the city. I know where the money's been wasted over the last eight years, and there's no proposal I've put forth that I can't pay for. We can put two teachers in every class, some $300 million a year, because we're getting record mm-hmm. foundation aid from Albany. We can equalize after school programs for all kids, regardless of zip code. That's $200 million. We can actually right. begin to think about all of these programs because budgets are about priorities. So if you don't waste money, and then money we're receiving from Albany, stimulus money, we could create real programs that can realize systemic change in the system. Right. What I've put forth, but I agree with you. You got to know where the money is, mm-hmm. and no candidate running for mayor has any understanding about the right. money because they had the opportunity to audit and investigate the de Blasio city agencies, as I have. Scott, not enough time here, but I've got to get this in. It's too important. Your heritage of this island of Manhattan, of New York City, goes back to Abraham Beam, your support of Mario Cuomo long ago and far away, and particularly your family affiliation to the wonderful Bella Absug. Folks, whether you agreed or disagreed with her, Everybody loved and admired Bella Absug for her energy. What would Bella Absug say about the mess you're in right now? Oh, keep fighting. <laughs> you know, listen, you don't, you don't begrudge uh, the challenges you face. To be mayor of New York City is not a straight line. Look, I beat Elliot Spitzer when everyone said I couldn't. I beat Eva Moskowitz for borough president when everyone said I couldn't. I've never been in a race where I was ahead or I didn't have turbulence. Uh, I'm a city kid. I get knocked down. I get backed up. That mm. was what Bella Abzug did in her career. That's what so many people before me did. My own mom was a single parent running for the city council when I was a little boy, and I watched her get knocked around too, and she kept fighting right yeah. back. And if we were alive today, they'd be like, keep your head down, keep moving, and get to the polls. That's what they would be telling me. Scott Stringer, thank you so, so much for joining us. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.